Today we return to our series on Romans chapter 8, which I've been describing every week as the greatest chapter in the entire Bible on the theme, the topic of the absolute security of a Christ follower. So today we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in Romans 8 that answer the question that's on your sermon notes. So if you have your sermon notes right on the front under theme, it says, how does prayer support the theme of our security? So that's what we're going to find out about uh, today. Now, in previous messages, previous uh, verses we've been looking at, the Apostle Paul has been describing the role of the Holy Spirit in applying salvation to us and thus giving us a sense of our assurance, our security, and, and the fact that we are deeply loved by God. It's interesting that there is only one reference that I have seen in the first seven chapters of this letter to the Holy Spirit. We come to chapter 8, and there are 19 references to the Holy Spirit in the first 27 verses of this chapter. So clearly the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So just to review a few things he's been saying up to this point, in verse 4 we learn that we no longer live under the control of our old sin nature, which the Apostle Paul describes as the flesh. Sin is still present in our lives, but it no longer is the power, the authority, the controlling influence that it used to be. As Paul says in chapter 6 of Romans, we used to be enslaved to the power of sin, but that's no longer the case. Now we do life under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. We're led by the Spirit is Paul's key phrase there. Verse 13 we're told that it's the Spirit of God who enables us to mortify or kill off our sinful desires. So he has a significant role to play in that regard. Then in verse 16, he indicates to us that because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit testifies or witnesses to our inward spirits that we are, in fact, the deeply loved, adopted sons and daughters of God. And as a result of that, Christian people have the right to address God as Abba, Father, a term of intimacy and endearment and fellowship with the Lord himself. So now, as we come to the two verses we're going to look at today, the beginning of verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, in the same way, so there's something else that the Spirit of God does to add to our security and our confidence. In the same way that he does all of these other things, the Spirit helps us in connection with prayer. Every Christian prays. You pray, don't you? But that doesn't mean we find prayer easy. Some of us struggle with finding time for prayer. Others of us struggle with prayer itself. Sometimes our hearts are cold, we feel distant from God, our minds in connection with prayer begin to wander and think about all kinds of other things, and so it's hard. One writer observes that if you want to humble a Christian, ask about his or her prayer life, because most of us are willing to acknowledge that in this area especially we seem to have all kinds of struggles. But it isn't just a struggle when prayer is hard, or when we find that our, we're just physically tired, or our minds are wandering. 
In the previous verses, 18 to 25, that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul has addressed and introduced us, really, to a new topic, the topic of suffering. And so there the Apostle indicates to us that we groan, and the entire creation is groaning, waiting for the time of our redemption, that is, the finality of our salvation when we're in the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. So what about prayer when your personal world is broken? What about praying when you're in crisis? Is there any help made available to us? Well, yes, and in a way that answers the question we're considering today in this theme question, how prayer supports our security. Now remember, God is committed to your security. And so he's not left us to fend for ourselves when it comes to the struggles and the difficulties of life itself. So to find out exactly what role the Holy Spirit plays now with reference to prayer, especially, I'm gonna invite you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word recorded for us in Romans chapter eight, verses 26 and 27. Let's hear the truth of God. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. So what do we do when we're so overwhelmed with the hurts and the difficulties and the losses of our existence that even the desire to pray becomes very difficult for us? Maybe prayer is the last thing you feel like doing during such times. What do, you, what do we do? Is there any hope available to us? You know, you're given the medical report and you go, I've got what, cancer? You're brought into the office of your supervisor and you respond to what's shared with you by saying, you're letting me go? You're terminating my employment? I'm being laid off after all of these years of faithful service to this organization? Or your spouse gives you some painful news and you respond by saying, you're leaving me and the kids? Or you pick up your phone, you respond to a call, and you go, she's gone? He's dead? I mean, how do you respond when you're hit with the difficult hurts and problems of daily life? Well, here we're told exactly what God does on our behalf. And I want to respond to all of this by attempting to explore and answer the three questions you see in your sermon notes. First of all, what does the Holy Spirit do for us during such times? Well, the answer is given in verse 26. He helps us in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So here then is an immediate source of comfort for each one of us. In a situation marked by emotional stress and perplexity and difficulty, the Holy Spirit does something amazing for each one of us. We're not alone when we face the struggles of daily life. Now, the original word translated here, helps, is really a combination of three different Greek words, two prepositions and a verb. You put all of those 
terms together and it comes out translated helps. But what does it really mean? Well, to give you a picture, think of someone who is attempting to carry a very heavy load and gets to about the halfway point and is about ready emotionally or even physically to collapse under the weight of it all. Can't carry on. Somebody comes along and says, here, let me help, and grabs the other end of it. So together they carry this load that was too difficult for one person acting alone. That's the picture that's given to us by this particular term. And Paul is then indicating to us, it's the Spirit of God who comes to our aid in this way. He helps you to carry the load. Or to give you another picture that builds into this, I think of Jesus' great words of invitation recorded in Matthew chapter 11 that go like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the picture here, of course, is of two oxen yoked together, pulling a load in order to make things a whole lot easier. And Jesus, in, in essence, is saying something to us like this. You're weary. You're burdened down. You're laboring because the load is too much for you. What I'm offering is for you to be yoked to me. So we're going to perform this together. And then you'll discover that the load that was so heavy becomes light. So Paul is saying that's exactly what the Holy Spirit of God does. Now I want you to notice something here. We're not told that the Holy Spirit takes over, that he takes from us the problems and the difficulties that we're dealing with in life. No, we're not left in a passive state, so the entire burden or problem is taken away. What he does is to take up the other end of the load so that together the problem is addressed in that manner. So when does the Holy Spirit help us? Well, Paul says, in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Literally, it means lack of strength. So he's referring to the impact of all of these trials and troubles and the things that depress us and the conflicts that we have with other people and, and all of these difficult moments. The, the Spirit of God helps us during such times in our weakness. Now, why is it that we're weak? Well, we're weak because, as the previous verses indicated to us, we live in a world that's messed up and broken, cursed of God because of human sin and rebellion against the authority of God. So we're under this curse, a world that's often frustrating to us when especially things seem to happen that make no sense to us. People disappoint us. Other people let us down. And there are all of these things and difficulties that occur in the realm of disease and disabilities and loss of life that leave us very discouraged and heavy-hearted. We don't even know at times what in the world to do or what to even pray for. So it's a, it's a struggle oftentimes for us, and often we're left asking the question, God, why? You know, one thinks of Job, who in a single day loses all 10 of his kids due to a tornado, all of his business is wiped out, raiding parties coming against him. He loses his health. He's left with a grouchy wife who essentially tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? 
He then has these three so-called friends who want to assure Job, it's all your fault, all of this suffering has come upon you because you're simply reaping what you have sown. And for more than 30 chapters, we're dealing with this man's struggles, some of which is with reference to God in connection with prayer. He's having a conversation, which really at times seems to be more like a shouting match as he's firing out all of these accusations. We come toward the end of the long letter, this long wisdom book of Job, and he still doesn't have any explanation as to why these terrible things have happened to him. Instead, God is pleased to reveal himself to Job in such a way as to declare his majesty and his greatness as if to suggest to Job, who in the world are you to question me? So he never gets any answers, but he's left in a state of humility and worship as he sees the greatness and the glory of Almighty God. So he's struggling at times. He's struggling in connection with prayer. Or one thinks of the Apostle Paul, who also struggled in connection with prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 indicates to us that on three different occasions, he asked God to remove some difficulty from his life often referred to as a thorn in the flesh. He never tells us what the problem was, but he does ask God to remove it. And finally, God says, Job, or Job, excuse me, Paul, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna remove your difficulty. My grace is sufficient for you, so stop asking me to take your issue away. So he struggles with prayer. And so for that matter, does Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's our Lord, fully divine. From eternity, we affirm what Christians have historically held to, the deity of Christ, that is to say he's fully God, possessing all of the attributes or the characteristics of God, involved in the creation and the sustaining of the, the entire world, governing it by the very word of his power. But then he adds something that he never had before, humanity. And if he's omniscient, all-knowing when it comes to his deity, in his humanity, there are things that he doesn't understand. And here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, in prayer, crying out to God, is there some other way than for me to go to the cross and to die for human beings and to suffer your judgment against human sin? So, Father, can you help me in all of this? Well, just as the Holy Spirit was in Christ, enabling him to execute his saving mission, so the Holy Spirit is in you, Christian. In your weakness, when you don't know, you know where to turn or what to do. So what does the Holy Spirit do for us? He is helping us during those times in our weakness. Well, let's go a little bit further with this and ask another question. Exactly how does the Holy Spirit help us in our weakness? Well, here's the answer also in verse 26. He helps us by praying for us. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us. So here you are, overwhelmed with some difficulty in your life. You're confused, you're worried, you're full of fear, perhaps not even knowing, as this verse says, what in the world you should even be praying for. You know anything about such times, by the way? I mean, you just feel a sense of loss. You're uncertain about what to do. In those situations, the Holy Spirit of God 
comes to your aid. And he's praying for you. I mean, what an incredible thought. But it's equally an incredible thought to realize it isn't just the Holy Spirit who prays for you. Paul will assert later in this chapter, we'll get to this verse in more detail to work it out, verse 34, where he indicates to us that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is also praying for us. Look at this. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So here's Jesus. He's completed his saving mission, death, burial, resurrection. He ascends to the Father. He goes back to heaven. Other verses in Scripture tell us he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. What does seating mean? Well, it's like what you do when you've been outside working in the garden. We've heard a lot about gardening this morning in our announcements. You're outside mowing the lawn or whatever it is, and you've put in a lot of time and effort, and you're kind of exhausted, and you come inside. What do you do? You sit down. You flop in some chair, grab the iced tea, the lemonade, or whatever. But this, this being seated is a sign that you have accomplished the task. Jesus seated is a picture to us of he has accomplished his saving mission on our behalf. So what is he doing today? This verse, the 34th, tells us that he's interceding for you. He is, in an ongoing way, praying for the application of his blood-atoning sacrifice to be applied to you in your life. So now we're learning that it's not just the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the Christ of God, who's praying for you, so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you in every struggle, every difficulty, every heartache, every trial that you face. You want comfort? Well, there it is. You want security? There it is. So the Spirit helps us by praying for us. All right, what's the prayer? Verse 26 continues. The Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us through wordless groans. Now at this point, commentators enjoy raising the question, who is doing the groaning here? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it us? Well, some would say it's the Holy Spirit. That seems to be the case here. People who come from more of a charismatic Pentecostal background tend to suggest to us that this language here would indicate to us that the Holy Spirit is praying in tongues. Now, we're not going to get into a big discussion this morning about praying in tongues, other than to say I think that's adding something into the text that's sort of foreign to the passage. Paul isn't talking about worship here. He's talking about groaning. And the reference here is to our weakness, our being in a state of pain and difficulty, all of which would suggest the view that the Holy Spirit is groaning doesn't seem to fit the context, at least not to my way of thinking. So I want to suggest to you that we're the ones who are doing the groaning, these wordless groans, and the Spirit of God takes our groans and he turns them into something coherent and intelligible. So it's the groaning that comes when you find yourself in a very difficult circumstance of life and you are so overwhelmed emotionally with hurt and pain and perplexity, you don't know what to do. You don't even know how to express your emotions, to put them into words. 
your emotions are simply overwhelming you, so you're not even thinking rationally anymore. All you can do is sort of, you know, sigh or groan or moan, and you feel like you're in a state of darkness, and the Spirit of God comes alongside of you in your state of darkness when you can't see what in the world to do next. Maybe you've had the experience of being on vacation sometime and visiting one of these underground caves. Have any of you ever had that experience? <laughs> okay, some of you have. And it does tend to attract a lot of tourists where you're brought maybe several hundred feet below ground, maybe by rail you go down deep into the underground area or by elevator or something. I understand that some people actually want to get married in such places or there are even many concerts that are held underground. So here you are surrounded by all of these stalactites and stalagmites. Don't ask me which goes with which direction because I never seem to be able to remember that. But here you are, the lights are on, everything is terrific. Maybe there's a tourist, tour guide there is explaining all of this to you. And then you're told we're going to shut off the lights. And there you are in darkness. It is so dark, you can't even see the person who's like three inches away. Maybe you can hear them breathing or the warmth of their body, you know, you, you can kind of feel it in the coldness of, of that cave situation. Well, Paul is in essence saying that's what the Holy Spirit is like. It may be completely dark for you, but you can almost hear the Holy Spirit breathing and the warmth of his presence as he helps you by interceding on your behalf. And so these are groans produced by the difficulty of your situation. It's like Hannah, whose story is brought to our attention in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Her husband had actually two wives. The other one was able to have kids for the husband, but not Hannah. And so she would faithfully go to the temple once a year and cry out to God. On one occasion, we're told in Scripture in 1 Samuel 1 that she was, her lips were moving, but nothing was coming out of her mouth. And so the priest on duty thought, maybe she's drunk, but had conversation with her, and that was quickly ruled out of the possibility. God in time blessed her with a child, Samuel, but here she is groaning, these wordless prayers expressed by Hannah on that particular occasion. So oftentimes in our suffering, we wonder, where is God? Does he even care for me and what it is that's going on in my life today? This passage assures you that he's there and he, yes, he cares. So when times are dark and difficult and uncertain, God the Spirit helps us by praying for each one of us. All right, so that raises yet a third question that I want to deal with this morning. What is the result of the Spirit's praying? Verse 27, he who searches our hearts, that's God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit. Now, why do you suppose the Apostle Paul begins this verse by referring to God in this way? Why? I mean, he could have said, you know, God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. But why does he say, he who searches our hearts is the one who knows the mind of the Spirit? Why is he describing God the Father in that way? I want to suggest he does so to bring out the element of comfort. The only one who can really search out our hearts is God the Father. 
And so the fact that he searches out our hearts means that he knows what's going on in your life and mine. He knows all about the difficulty, the struggle that you're going through, and he cares. God knows all about the pain, all about the sorrow that you carry in your heart. Elsewhere, the scripture says, Hebrews 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. So since God knows all there is to know about you, then he also knows about the groanings and the signs that maybe nobody else even knows about. I mean, what comfort. So he, hear, he hears our prayers when maybe they're nothing but incoherent cries of pain. Let's call them what they are, wordless prayers. So God clearly does not need our carefully worded, coherent sentences about whatever it is that we're dealing with, perhaps at the present time. He who searches our hearts knows. I think all of this is well summarized in a 17th century German hymn that got translated about 100 years after that by John Wesley into English. And there are just a couple of lines I want to quote from that in one particular stanza. God hears your sighs and counts your tears. God shall lift up your head. Friends, he hears. He hears it all. The groans, the pain, the difficulty. When you can't even express yourself, he hears. But more than that, he also understands such prayers. You know, it's pretty hard at times to understand someone else's groans, right? I mean, can you imagine trying to figure out someone's prayer that's all broken up, wet with tears, discordant with sighs and inarticulate speech? I mean, it's, try, it's something like trying to figure out the cry of a, of a toddler who's just learning how to talk. And a child says, and he's all upset about something. You go, what, what, I don't understand. What, what is it you're trying to say? What's wrong? And then the parent comes over. Honey, what's wrong? And the child comes out, does the exact same thing, says the exact expression all over again. And the parent says, oh, okay, I understand. And the parent, of course, is able oftentimes to figure out what it is that's going on. Well, God hears and understands the cries, the groans, the sighs, the difficulties of his children. He hears, he understands, but it doesn't even end there. The Father also accepts such prayers. That's also verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for God's people, notice, in accordance with the will of God. Now what that last part is saying is that the Spirit knows the will of God the Father because of course the Holy Spirit is omniscient, all-knowing, and so he even knows how our individual stories are going to end. And so he knows exactly what the Father wants you to do in any particular situation, what the response is going to be to even a time of crisis. Well, of course he does. The Holy Spirit is God, right? So as he searches out our hearts, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit knows the mind of the Father, and it's as if the Spirit brings you and what's going on in your life together with the will of the Father. A few years ago, Carolyn Nystrom wrote a book on prayer co-authored with J.I. Packer, describing exactly what I think happened. She writes the following sentence. The Holy Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. What a phrase. I mean, it's an amazing thought. 
Our prayers are often unholy. They're often self-absorbed. We don't know in any given situation what the will of God might be. We have very limited understanding of our, of our circumstances, and we certainly don't want pain or suffering. That's the last thing we want. We want life to be comfortable, problem-free, and we want God to answer our prayers like now. We want immediate answers, immediate gratification. But often, that's not God's will for us. So the Holy Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. And so by the time they reach God the Father, they are perfect. So the Spirit intercedes for us in this particular way. He makes our prayers exactly what they should be. So here is the Spirit of God helping the parent who finds him or herself in some hospital room day after day, struggling with perhaps an ill or injured child. Parent is totally worn out, devastated by the events of life, can hardly even cry out to God. Spirit is there understanding all of that. Spirit of God is there when the spouse who's dreaming of a happy marriage is shattered in her dreams by infidelity and deceit. Wonders, how in the world am I going to carry on? Spirit of God understands those painful cries too. Or it's the worker who is laid off with no job prospect in sight. What do I do? I'm 50, 55 years old. Where do I go? What do I do now? Spirit of God understands those struggles. Spirit of God understands each one of us when we're struggling with loneliness or discouragement or situational depression, whatever the case may be. The Spirit of God helps by praying with you and for you. And the Father is never going to turn away the request of the Spirit. I mean, how can that happen? How could it happen that the Spirit who understands the will of God the Father is offering now a prayer on your behalf. How is it possible that the Father is going to turn down the request of the Spirit and create a division within the Godhead? I mean, that's, that's never going to happen. So the Spirit of God fixes our prayers on the way up. What a verse. What a privilege it is to be a Christian because it's only the Christian who has this kind of assistance, only the child of God. So we pray and we groan with confidence, knowing that he hears, he understands, and he accepts, yes, even our wordless groans and our prayers. So let me close the teaching time this morning by drawing your attention to five encouragements from these verses. So I'm not asking you to do anything. There's no homework just to be encouraged by a passage of scripture this morning. So here's the first of the five. You're not expected to know the will of God in all of its detail. I mean, that's why you have the Holy Spirit, because he does understand. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So there will be circumstances in which, due to the emotional strain that you may be going through, you have no idea how to pray or what to do. You're just so overwhelmed with the situation. Well, or perhaps I should say you do know, but you don't like it. And maybe you're just a little bit in that sense like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking if there could be some other way. If Jesus could struggle in his humanity, 
and Paul could struggle, Job could struggle, let that be of encouragement to you. You're not expected to know the will of God in all of its detail. Number two, in your distress, God isn't just watching you from a distance, emotionally detached from whatever it is that's going on in your life. He's the God who searches our hearts, and so he knows exactly what's going on. God indwells you by his spirit. You take God with you wherever you go. So if this week you find yourself in the ER with some sick child, you're not alone. If this week you're walking into a new job situation and you're kind of nervous about that, you're not alone. If you're taking exams still before you know, finals coming up or this fall you're starting in a new school situation, you're entering into marriage, you're about to turn the page in your life and move into retirement, you're never alone and the Holy Spirit understands you. He knows exactly the groans and the challenges you're dealing with and so he isn't just sort of passively standing by like a spectator watching a game that's boring and would otherwise get out the phone, you know, and scroll through the messages. He's just sort of bored by the whole deal. That's not the picture we're given here. The Spirit of God is actively involved in encouraging you. All right, number three. God's help is not limited to what you can understand. Boy, is that ever good news. In fact, we're going to learn even more about that next week as we move into another verse here in Romans chapter 8 that indicates to us that God permits all kinds of difficulties to come our way for the greater good of our being conformed in greater measure to the likeness and the character of Christ himself. And that plan of God will be accomplished. So God's help isn't limited. All right, number, what is it, four, in your weakness and distress, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. And even when it feels as though there's a tension, you know, like Job or Paul or even Jesus was dealing with, the fact remains he draws you closer and closer to the will of your heavenly Father. Begins to shape your heart toward whatever it is that's going on and the fact that God is there for you. Finally, number five, the Father always hears the Holy Spirit. So there's no division in the Godhead, in the Trinity. The Father loves the Spirit and the Son. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and the Father. And so when the Spirit intercedes for you, the Father always hears those prayers. And so that's the confidence that you can have in connection with prayer, a prayer that becomes yet another means employed by God the Father to comfort us and to assure us of our ultimate security. So even when your prayers are not very eloquent, even when you're overwhelmed and all you could do is express struggle and pain and heartache and difficulty and, and distress, the prayers of your weakness, the prayers in connection with times of darkness, the Spirit of God is there taking those prayers and fixing them on the way up. Friends, this is only possible because the second person of the Godhead, Jesus the Christ, stepped into human history to take our sin upon himself. That's why you have a Holy Spirit who's interceding for you. That's why all of these privileges and blessings are now yours in Christ himself. And today, we have the privilege of remembering that sacrifice on our behalf by coming 
to what is called the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. It's a time for us to remember by the use of visual aids or reminders exactly what Jesus has done on our behalf. So we have two elements that have been given to us, bread and juice. The bread broken reminding us of the broken body of our Savior, broken on the cross and sacrificed for my sin and yours. The blood when poured out providing a covering so when a holy God looks down from heaven on each one of us, what does he see? Not our guilt, not our shame, not our sin, but blood atoning blood that has satisfied the justice of a holy God. So, this is a meal for Christians. If you're a Christ follower, this is for you. You don't need to be a member of our church. You just need to be some, someone who is trusting in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. So if you're not quite there, ready to say that you're a Christian, I guess you've got a choice this morning. One is to simply not participate in this meal because, frankly, you have nothing to remember. Or better yet, why not respond to Christ in the privacy of this place today, right here for you, in the quietness of this moment, receiving Christ into your life as your Savior and Lord, and then joining the rest of us as we partake of these elements. I'm going to ask that the servers come forward now. And uh, we'll be observing communion once again this morning by what is called intinction. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand and get out of your seats and use the side aisles to come down to the front. One server will be offering you a tray of bread. You take a piece of the bread or the cracker and dip it in the juice. Partake of both elements while you're up here. And then return to your seat by using the center aisle. You'll be offered gluten-free bread at this time as well. Hear then these words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, our Lord took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you for taking even our self-absorbed, self-focused prayers, the prayers that are offered oftentimes in our pain and our darkness, when we have no idea where to turn or what to do next, and you fix them on the way up. You're praying for us right now. Lord, what encouragement and comfort this gives to us. So take the cries of those that are here today those especially who are hurting and struggling, and may you assure them that they're never alone. Father, grant to each one of us a clear sense of your nearness, grant direction and wisdom wherever needed, and your peace. We come now to give you our thanks for the privilege of remembering our Savior in this meal. And so we give you our thanks for the bread that serves as a beautiful picture of the body of Jesus broken and sacrificed for us, the cup that assures us that his blood has been shed to provide a covering for our sin. And so we're asking you now to use this meal in this time of, of celebration and reflection, drawing us to yourself, 
renewing our faith and our hope and our love for each one of us, for each, for each other and for you. So we pray this in the name of the one who sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.